Hello and welcome. Um, so welcome to the first ISGAP series event. Um, this session here at Harvard uh, University. So before I begin, I'd like to thank you for coming to our event on such a, a snowy, stormy day. So today um, we are very, very honored to have Dr. Wagachevsky with us. And Dr. Wagachevsky is the Tigvak Postdoctoral Fellow at the Strauss Center for Torah and Western Thought at Yeshiva University. Dr. Wagachevsky received his PhD in history from Sydney Sussex College, Cambridge University in 2014. He has published academic works and, journaliz and um, journalism on topics ranging from modern Zionism, French political thought and contemporary Israeli and European politics. His writings have appeared in French history, the Wall Street Journal, The Atlantic, Haaretz, The Weekly Standard, Mosaic, and other publications. The title of Dr. Wogachevsky's presentation this evening is The Politics of Israeli Public Diplomacy from the Second Intifada to the Present. So please, let's welcome Dr. Wogachevsky and uh, let's look forward to a very stimulating presentation. Welcome. Thank you so much for that introduction, and I'd like to uh, also extend my thanks for coming out on an evening with uh, a bit of a weather event, I suppose they say. Um, so uh, it is appreciated. Ladies and gentlemen, Israel has never been more concerned about its image and reputation abroad, and yet the image and reputation of Israel abroad stands at one of its lowest points in its history. Over the last few decades in particular, there's been a large slide in support for and sympathy with the state of Israel as expressed and measured in more or less accurate global surveys, opinion polls, uh, in political and as well in political moves of, uh, uh, against Israel adopted by countries which were more or less inclined or thought to be positively disposed towards Israel. Just in the last two weeks, we saw American acquiescence in, in labeling goods from the West Bank as originating from the West Bank, um, implying the West Bank is not part of Israel. Um, and uh, a veiled or I would say explicit threat from the French government that it would recognize Palestinian statehood um, absent advances in the seemingly moribund peace process. Um, also, one could, one could cite uh, the speeches and uh, writings of so-called thought leaders, um, people formerly well disposed to Israel, now, now seemingly less so. Um, there are, it is true, some important exceptions, as well as political developments that offer good grounds for optimism. Uh, relations with the East Asian countries offer a bright spot, which still haven't been uh, explored adequately, I would say. Um, however, on the whole, the Jewish state has been losing ground. Now, being approved of and loved is far from the most important political goal. And one should say right off the bat of this speech that um, it, that it does not counsel Israel to alter policies exclusively for the hope for approval of other nations. Courting the nations of the world in this fashion works about as well as doing so in private courtship, i.e. not at all. However, the level of disapproval of Israel makes advancing its political goals and interests much harder. And as a small country surrounded by many enemies, Israel does need friends. And I think there are potentially ways to improve Israel's image in line with and indeed supportive of its true national interest. Lest one underestimate the subject of, uh, of diplomacy or public diplomacy in this character, one should recall the efforts uh, of US public diplomacy in the Cold War, which really did have a decisive and probably still underreported impact in, in, winning, in winning that fight. Um, so that's an example worth keeping in mind. Um, so I will offer some evidence for, this, uh, for the slide in uh, Israel's reputation, but I won't spend that much time on it because I don't think it's that controversial. Now we can argue about the connection between this decline and in the standing of Israel and opinion and er Israel's policies and characters or else features and, or changes of the policies of the characters of the other nations of the world. I'm sure no one has any thoughts about that in this room. Um, however, what I principally want to do is look at these efforts of Hasbara and public diplomacy. Hasbara is the Hebrew word. I'm sure many of you have heard, for, which expresses the sort of Israeli, Israeli understanding of what diplomacy and its public character involves. 
So what I'm going to do is I'm going to give my account of this, uh, principally going to do is going to give my account of this Hasbara, um, the effort of Israel to defend itself or promote its image, um, to respond to criticisms or worse, um, and to advance positive conceptions of itself and its conduct abroad. Um, as I say, yes, Hasbara is the Hebrew word, which uh, means explanation, uh, and that's, that's quite, quite important. Um, and uh, if you know Israel at all, you'll see that this, this term has become increasingly important, both in, in diaspora Jewish communities, but especially in Israel over the last two decades. Um, it's become uh, quite important. It was subject to ridicule beforehand. What, what's, what's, what's the purpose of having that? Um, it's simply idle chatter. It's simply speech. Um, but in particular, since the Second Intifada, it's been a growing concern of the government, uh, of NGOs, um, both with, with, within Israel and outside organizations in America as well, devoted to the, um, the well-being and support of Israel, have uh, invested massive efforts um, in this enterprise of Hasbara. Now, I won't, of course, be able to assess every project which falls under the general rubric of Hasbara, and no doubt some of them have been, uh, have been successful and have borne fruits in various ways. However, in judging at a general strategic and indeed a tactical level as well, I think one could say that the Hasbara and Israeli public diplomacy in general suffers from some important defects which I wish to sketch. There are many factors here, but the principal one, and this is sort of the overarching thought um, at the kernel of this talk, is the ingrained and I would say even growing um, tendency in Israel to disconnect political words and political action, um, which is a tendency that exists in many other Western countries as well. We can think of American parallels to that as well. So that's the kernel thought. It takes a complicated argument to explain it, but I will try to do so. Um, the effort of Hasbara, of greater public diplomacy, has been conjured up as a response to this, of course, as a di disconnect between our word and deed. You hear Israeli leaders saying, look, we've, you know, our conduct, given the difficult circumstances, we've acted well. How are we not able to communicate this better? We have a difficult situation, um, but our policies are more or less in line with what they have to be. Given the circumstances, how can we communicate better? Um, and there have been a few important successes in terms of communicating um, political action and bringing the message associated with some policy, which I'll, which I'll also mention. Um, but um, on the whole, I think that um, the effort suffers from some weaknesses, which I'll try to sketch at a general level, but also descending to some uh, particulars. Um, one of the most important, just say this off the bat, I think the term Hasbara explanation is deeply flawed as a manner of conveying what diplomats have to do and what diplomats who are engaged in persuading people in the world about things. And uh, we might be better off uh, dispensing with that and thinking more in terms of diplomacy, which I think is a, which I think is a much better word. So here's what, here, here's what I'll do. Um, here, here's what I'll do in a nutshell. First, I'll briefly return to this, uh, just giving a bit of evidence on justifying the setbacks in global opinion um, for Israel over the last few decades and talk about some of the reasons that have been advanced in that line. That won't take very long. Um, second, I'll explain the architecture of Hasbara, give a brief account of the institutions and the networks which have grown up um, in Israel to sort of fight this, to counter, counter that effort, to try to explain uh, itself and its policies better. Uh, third, I'll outline what I believe to be the limitations uh, of the Israeli way of Hasbara, the, indeed the Israeli way of diplomacy, uh, again in general terms, descending down to a few examples. And fourth, I'll consider some of the few successes which I've seen in, in recent years, particularly since the se second intifada time frame, which I've given in the title of my talk. Um, the two I'm thinking of in particular are Israel's articulation of its position in the Syrian civil war, which I think has been a big success, and Israel's relation to this phenomenon of the high-tech Israel startup nation, um, and that somewhat grating phrase, if you know the title of this popular book, i.e. the promotion of Israel as a hub of high-tech activity, which also, I think, uh, in a fair assessment, has to be judged as a success. So I'll see what those two cases can teach us about Israeli diplomacy um, more general, uh, in a more general way. And finally, I'll conclude with my own thoughts on a general level on some particular examples how um, Israeli diplomacy might be revitalized. 
So the numbers, both polls and less quantifiable observations testify to the fact that Israel's image abroad has been on the decline amongst peoples who are formally liable to look at the Jewish state with sympathy, either friendly neutrality, or at least not disdain and hatred. Um, the last large credible poll was conducted by the Pew Forum in 2013, uh, before the war in Gaza, which, which um, had an impact as well. And this saw uh, astonishingly high, uh, unfavorable views of Israel, um, higher, higher than its, uh, much higher than its previous survey. So we had 44% in Britain, 62% in Germany, 65% in France, 66% in China, and the 80 to 90 range in the Arab and Muslim uh, world countries. Um, I would not be surprised if in the next survey some of these numbers go up. Um, and uh, a more recent, I said there was a more recent one in Germany done just uh, a few months ago, I think, and the, the Israel's unfavorable is approaching 75% in Germany, which is, which is quite, quite astonishing. Uh, America remains the outlier. Um, sympathy for Israel at 57%. Uh, one of the few countries where the number is over over 50% on the on the sympathy side, 27% um, uh, opposed or um, uh, unfavorable view of Israel. Um, I'm not going to, for the sake of uh, politesse and civic comedy, I won't discuss the American case very much. Um, but uh, there has been, it's clear, and especially in the European countries, there's been a the trend line uh, has been down. Um, uh, uh, I, had a, I had a jarring experience in this respect, uh, talking to a French political philosopher I very much admire, who had been a sort of a lone voice, or uh, one of the few um, voices, um, uh, defend, a big defender of Israel in the, in the Cold War, um, confessing in public that he felt less warmth towards Israel, that he simply, he looked inside his soul and he couldn't muster the same support that he had. And this was, this was, a, this was a jarring uh, experience for me. Now, we, I alluded to this in the, in the intro, we shouldn't commit the fallacy, which is a democratic fallacy, of supposing that mass public opinion tells the whole story. Um, every person has an opinion, but in politics, not every opinion matters equally always. Um, in European countries, one thinks of the German case, so you have 75% unfavorable, but you think of the example of Angela Merkel, um, who's had a very favorable disposition towards Israel. She's been adamant. Um, in ensuring the delivery of the new nuclear submarines, the maintenance of the upkeep on that. And she's often done so in the face of massive popular opposition. Um, obviously, there are you know, countries with non-representative institutions where you know, the pu public opinion polls tell you something, but not the whole story, right? And so Saudi Arabia, for instance, very high public unfavorable uh, of Israel. But um, this is, in, you know, in a, from a certain point of view, this is a less germane fact than the growing rapprochement between the House of Saad and the Israeli government over the growing Iranian threat. So one can't make the mistake that it's simply all public opinion. There are other, other, other factors um, at work here as well. But the street, whether the Arab street or the European public, whatever, whatever nomenclature you wish to use, um, obviously can't be ignored. And one wonders, particularly in European case, and you know, even in the case of Saudi Arabia, how long the opinions or passions of uh, the populations can be uh, ignored. So I identify why. What, what, what's happening? I think there are three main reasons, or of course, m many reasons. I, I, of, all, of all the reasons advanced for why Israel's standing has declined, um, I think, I think there, there are three main ones. Um, the first is that Israel has grown morally and politically worse and uniquely so, and has therefore lost uh, much, of, much of the goodwill the wor world offered it due to its character and its actions and, and so forth. Um, I, won't, I won't disguise the fact that taken as a standalone argument in particular, I think uh, it verges on the preposterous. Um, even if one were to accept the view that Israel is a uniquely bad actor on the international stage, one would still have to account for ch change over time, right? And indeed, the, the steep decline in recent years. And looking back in Israeli history, both pre and post 1967, one finds events as stormy t uh, today in issues of war and peace, which had some but less decisive influence on perceptions of Western countries of Israel. Um, in terms of the oft-repeated charge of militarism, you hear this uh, a lot uh, about Israel, particularly in Europe. Um, 
it's actually, you know, I, I, I personally find the biggest errors in terms of militarism, so-called, that Israel committed were in the early 50s in Ben-Gurion sort of revenge raids on Egypt um, and some comparable stuff by Moshe Dayan in the wake of the Six-Day War. And you compare those actions to um, Israeli responses to, um, to uh, assaults from, uh, from its neighbors today, I mean, it, it pales in comparison. So I, uh, I, 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 I personally don't find this argument um, ha has much credibility. Um, on the other hand, it's never included when people are castigating Israel for its you know, de, you know, decline in, in standing, whether you know, potentially false, false beliefs about um, peace and the, you know, the nearness of peace. They're never somehow included in the list of uh, complaints about declining, uh, declining Israeli character. Um, so perhaps, I mean, I wouldn't want to dismiss this point completely, but, um, and uh, maybe in this uh, paradoxical way, it's grounds for some soul searching. Um, but I don't think it's a decisive answer. Um, the second argument, and what we obviously have to mention this in a session sponsored by um, uh, a very important institution devoted to anti-Semitism, is the growth of a new anti-Semitism more virulent in recent years. Um, I think one cannot deny that there is something to this argument, and I, I, I surely wouldn't uh, deny it. Um, but I personally think it's, it's more useful to look at this problem in a more concrete way. Because if you blame anti-Semitism alone, you're, you're fighting an ism, which is a kind of metaphysical thing rather than a political thing. And of course, the term anti-Semitism was invented in the 19th century precisely with his metaf you know, these metaphysical connotations, right? The Semite isn't merely a Semite. He's a, he's a product of anti-Semitism, as you know, was invented by an, uh, um, uh, uh, an opponent of Jews. And he invented it to have this kind of connotations to enforce the distinction between you know, the, the, you know, the Teutonic, the Aryan, and the, the non-Aryan. Um, so if you look at anti-Semitism alone, I obviously think it's uh, important to talk about it in many respects, but when you're trying to think politically, it can sometimes be disabling. Um, so um, I prefer, in, in my case, I, not to speak simply of anti-Semitism, but particularly in the case of Western opinions about Israel, changes in Western politics over the last few decades which can't but have a barren opinion, uh, which can't but influence uh, views towards Israel. Um, the most massive example um, is the European project, the idea behind the European project, which in its most extreme form calls for a world without borders. Um, the idea behind Europe, if you think about it, um, now obviously Europeans and bureaucrats in Brussels recognize there can be de facto borders, but the idea behind Europe is the erosion of these national differences, these, this us versus them, these kind of politics, which in the European view are responsible for so much hatred and bloodshed. All the horrors of the 20th century come from this kind of assertion of, of, of borders. Um, and, uh, and you look, I think the most massive example of that is the debate, still the debate over Turkey, uh, Turkish membership in the European Union in the last decade, where it was just impossible for European leaders to say, okay, Turkey is not part of Europe. It may be a good country, may have good relations with it, but to draw some distinction that there's, that the, that to say, okay, this is Europe and that's not Europe. And there's tremendous difficulty in doing that. So how can that not have you know, a tremendous bearing on relations with probably the one country in the world that we can, again, I'm not gonna talk too much about America, which is proudly you know, all about borders, about national self-assertion, which still thinks in these very traditional terms um, versus, you know, our, our, our place versus their place, um, where those kind of uh, notions which are seen to be retrograde or even racist um, in Europe are still, still maintained. Um, so um, I think that current anti-Israel anti opinions um, in Europe have to be seen in that context. Now, I should just add, uh, as a follow-up, I mean, we're seeing massive reactions to this kind of no, no borders intellectual project um, that uh, exists in, in, in Europe and in, in populist parties. We can now talk about the United States in these terms as well um, and how Israel, Israel will have to think about how, how it deals with, with, with that kind of reaction as well. There are perils and new opportunities to that. But I think in a, in a, when, I'm, when I'm looking at this problem, the growth of anti-Israel anti sentiment, particularly in Europe, I think, I think specifically um, of, that, of that phenomenon. Um, so now, again, everyone, this isn't the core of my talk. I think it's just important while we're, while we're discussing this to mention it. And you, know, you, you, you may have your own take, but 
Um, that's, 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 to my mind, that's the explanation that has the most merit. Now, so how has Israel respond, responded to this, to this, to the campaigns of delegitimization of its activities and itself and, um, and the like? Uh, as I say, in the past, Israel has taken a very cavalier attitude to the questions of perceptions and images and so forth. Nixon, as you know, famously said, F the Jews, they won't vote for us anyway. Um, Israeli leaders have often been tempted to say, F the world, we're not going to get much support from them in any case. Um, it's, it's actually it's surprising, or surprising to me, looking into this a little bit, the Israeli leaders most given uh, to, that, to those kind of uh, assertion. And it's more on the labor, labor you know, supposedly dovish side um, than on the, um, the right side. Um, uh, Shimon Peres in his earlier, now he's kind of become a proponent of uh, you know, high-tech high Israel Hasbara in his early days, he said, you know, he was confronted with this question, should Israel be devoted to Hasbara? He said, if a country has good policies, it does not need PR. And if the policy is bad, the best PR in the world will not help. Um, Yitzhak Rabin, I would say, was probably the leader who most fit this profile. He had contempt for all kinds of political speech. I'll return to that in a minute. Um, at very, so it's been a very... Uh, uh, halting process, the effort to craft some you know, legitimate resources and some particular um, efforts to uh, public di diplomacy, but often it fell um, by the wayside as a, as a secondary concern, either languishing in the Ministry of Foreign Affairs with a very low status, um, and sometimes there's been an independent ministry of Hasbara. There is one now. It was just founded in um, 2009. This was a direct um, uh, initiative of, uh, it, was, it was thought about under, under the Olmert, Olmert regime in Kadima, but Netanyahu, this has been a concern of Netanyahu also sort of sees himself as a, you know, a, um, the, the, the speaker for, uh, for Israel and, and for the, the Jewish world at large. Um, but the first, the first run, so looking back, I mean, we, can, we can talk about, the, we'll, we'll talk about this current uh, effort of Hasbara, but the first one, the, one, the first time there was an independent ministry of Hasbara, uh, not encouraging precedent. It was from 1974 to 1975, lasted only a year. It was shut down. There was disaster because of infighting between the various ministries. The Ministry of Foreign Affairs said, oh, this is rightly our terrain. Um, the army had its say. The prime minister wanted to be uh, more, more directly um, in control of, um, of uh, setting policy with respect to um, um, public diplomacy, um, so it didn't. Uh, so it it, it didn't pan, didn't pan out at all. Um, but this effort looks to be more long lasting. The the office. So since two thousand nine, there's been a cabinet minister um, who is uh, devoted, you know, minister of Hasbara, minister of explanation. Um, sound, sounds sort of Orwellian, of course, but um, such such are the times we live in. Uh, and uh, so he's he's had some other portfolio at times either. Now neither of these figures have been there have been two ministers. Neither of them have been so influential. Um, but the prime minister Netanyahu has taken an active interest in this kind of aspect, and he's given. Of course, we know Netanyahu is given to making speeches um, in both Hebrew and English. Um, and there's been all kinds of stuff. So many of you, I'm, I'm sure in this room, are familiar with it. The efforts, digital persuasion. There's been a massive growth of organizations stand with us to show images of the conflict and to respond to global accusations against Israel in the media and to showcase uh, the Israel point of view. Um, the army has been active at, itself in, in coordination with this ministry of, um, you know, of providing video footage and... Uh, and all kinds of things to immediately respond to any narratives about bad, bad Israeli action um, with the Israeli point of view. Now, I think some of this has been effective, and we should look back. I titled this talk um, uh, second, uh, from the second intifada of the present, because that's really when um, the impetus to create something like this, to start to do something like this, really came out of that time. The early second intifada, you had these, these accusations, which were false, um, you know, put, it, put out there by... by um, by Arab media or Palestinian media. Um, the famous case in 2000 of the murder of the boy, Aldura, who turned out not to be murdered. Um, the massacre in Jenin when, um, uh, when our, the, the battles, during the battles of the Second Intifada, uh, the Israeli army had a pitch battle with, with terrorists in Jenin, um, in which uh, 64 terrorists were killed and something like 13 soldiers, I think, which was portrayed a, as a massacre of thousands of people were killed um, in Jenin, and it was simply false. However, for weeks, 
um, Israel was not able to uh, respond to that, and who knows what kind of damage that did, right? So Israel does now have the ability to respond to those things, and I can't, you know, it's hard, it's hard to measure um, the uh, success of that, um, but um, I think that, you know, there, there, there's something to that that can't be denied. Um, but on the whole, just looking, looking at, looking at this, this network, this architecture of, of images um, or, you know, think, uh, institutions devoted to telling the Israeli story and um, explaining the conflict and giving, giving the Israeli point of view to what's happening uh, in wartime, um, I think that um, it's not as much an impact in persuading people to support Israel or come over to the Israeli side if it's about picking sides. Um, and um, I would say that um, particularly the this, this, this small stuff, these images of when there's a rocket, you know, there's a the Israeli Hasbar rocket that falls somewhere in, uh, in Israel or a stabbing. Of course, we're in, a, um, in a, an abysmal phase, although it's calmed down in recent weeks of stabbings in Israel. So the Hasbara, um, the mechanisms of Hasbara are there to showcase, oh, look at this, look at this horrible thing, look at what our enemies are doing to us, look at, look, look, um, look, look at what we're faced with. Um, in my experience, again, hard to measure, I think that there's so little context in these kinds of things, like so little attempt to connect to the general um, conflict between the Arabs and Israel, Israelis and Palestinians, that it's hard to be persuaded by that unless you're already deeply enmeshed. If you know what's going on, you know the political dynamics, you can sort of be rallied by this kind of thing. But I don't see any evidence of people being won over like, hey, geez, look at, look at what the Israelis are facing. I'd, I'd love to be corrected on those grounds, but I just, I just don't see it very much. Um, and uh, again, there, there is something to be said for rallying, rallying the troops. Um, but I don't, as a, as a matter of persuasion and articulation of, of uh, diplomacy, um, I don't. I don't see. Uh, I don't. See, I don't see it working so well. So that's one. That's one thing that you see. There. There are basically two poles of Hasbara. So there's a small stuff which um, attempts to explain the Israeli point of view in sort of day-to-day -day conflict. Um, usually, you know, it, um, uh, Israelis Palestinian Israeli Palestinian case. And then there's kind of the macro stuff, a general promotion of Israel. You see. You see a lot of this now. This is just to, developed over the last 15 years. You know, the promotion of Tel Aviv as a city. Tel Aviv was barely a city um, in the mid-90s. It's become somewhat of a city and there's been a, ma a massive effort. It was a city, but it's really, I mean, a small, small, small kind of place, not like a Mediterranean, you know, med Mediterranean um, city with, with um, nightlife and all kinds of things. So there have been big efforts to promote um, Tel Aviv as well. You know, Israel is a nice, liberal, open country. You, this has been a, a big line of... Um, Israeli Hasbara as well. So you have those, basically, as far as I can see, you have those two, two poles. You have the macro abstract, Israel is nice. Um, if, it, if it were about how Israel were good, maybe I'd be uh, more inclined to the abstract stuff, but it's generally how Israel is nice. Um, and then you have the day-to-day -day stuff of what's, what's happening um, in, uh, in the conflict. Um, but absent in really all of this is policy and the, the, the major stuff of politics and what the government is doing. Um, how, um, um, uh, you know, Israel's policies with respect to um, the Palestinians, explaining the Iran position, um, explaining the continued Israeli presence on the, on the West Bank. Um, and if you look at it, global opinion on these grounds, it's just worse, right? There are fewer people who are sympathetic to the fact that Israel has a, rather than viewing um, Israeli continued possession of the West Bank as a unfortunate necessity, it's now, it's now increasingly seen as unspeakably is evil. Um, and um, Israel, through, through all these efforts, has made very little progress over the, last, uh, over, the, over the last two decades since the Second Intifada, right? So even if you judge these, these, uh, these um, sort of tactical successes and producing videos and uh, persuading a few people that you know, Tel Aviv has, has good nightlife, um, you have to measure it against the lack of progress uh, in these other, other fundamental areas. So... I, I, so, 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 so my view is that this middle is, is, is the most important. Between that abstract, um, Israel is nice, and the day-to-day -day stuff of, you know, look, 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 at, look at the person being stabbed. Um, uh, I think the middle, the, this, this middle ground of explaining, trying to actually give an account 
of what your diplomatic position is, is the most important thing you could be doing. And currently, Israel doesn't do it very much. Um, there, are some, there are some deep structural reasons in Israeli society for this. Um, the first problem, as I mentioned, is the very term Hasbara. Um, as I mentioned, it means explanation, um, which sounds unobjectionable enough until you compare it to some of the other terms which one could use, diplomacy. We'll ignore alternatives, you know, a Machiavellian term like spiritual warfare. Um, we, can, we can stick with diplomacy. Um, explanation, um, uh, hasbara lehasbir, uh, from the verb, um, it's, um, it gives a connotation of saying something after you've done something. It's an opinion. It's not tied to any particular action you've done. Anisover, I think, I opine. Um, it's a, so by using that term, I think you lose this larger sense of diplomacy where speech and deed, they're not exactly the same thing. And you know, much of the, uh, many of the greatest works of political philosophy, Thucydides and the like, are about the, you know, the natural disjoint in a, word, in, in a way between speech and deed. However, there's always some, some relation. And they always, in a, in a just diplomacy, those things do have to go together. Um, but the term Hasbara becomes, um, it, it, lo it loses this, this larger connection. And it becomes sort of like a, ra a rationalization um, for, for something that a government has done, maybe on other grounds. Um, so the connection between what's actually done and the um, justification of it um, is broken. Uh, so I, right, so I wouldn't, I wouldn't necessarily say that um, this, this, this disjoint in the, in, in, Husbar, in the kinds of Hasbara that have been offered, I don't think those, those examples have produced like themselves um, needless understandings between, but in, in, that sp in the space between wor words and deeds, but it hasn't rectified um, rectify the situation by tying uh, the explanation and the words to particular policies that Israel has pursued. So I think, I think it'd be worth saying, uh, you know, Israel has invested a lot in these terms. There are Hasbara fellowships the government gives out to foreigners to come learn about Israel and then explain its activities. Um, but I think, I think uh, it might be time to think of using the word diplomatia, diplomacy, rather than Hasbara. But it's not simply terminological as well. Um, Benjamin Netanyahu, his desire to have, so he oversees this current Hasbara, he works closely with the current Hasbara minister. Um, I think he sees this disconnect um, between uh, words and deeds, um, and that it is a um, specifically Israeli phenomenon to view diplomacy um, as simply explanation, chatter, something not very important. The real work is done by the army and the political class making decisions, and all this stuff is, this other stuff is, is simply irrelevant. It's, it's in a way, it's, it's laughable. Um, Abba Ibn, uh, the long-serving uh, ambassador to the UN and the United States, and then the foreign minister, and incidentally, I think one of the most profound, he's neglected in this context, social observers of the state of Israel, um, commented upon this dynamic in his time by noting the complete lack of communication between the Ministry of Foreign Affairs and the Army and the Prime Minister's office on, on very concrete issues where they should have been able to communicate. And so he was often le left out there at, uh, at the UN or um, in various posts, simply having to give a, give a speech that had, could have very little relation to what the government was actually doing. It wasn't a matter of lying or, you know, like the definition of ambassador is a good man who uh, lies, or a diplomat, a good man who lies for his country. It's a matter of having no, no, no direct knowledge of uh, what was happening. Um, and that's, that's, that's not, a good, not a good place to uh, be in. Things have changed a little bit um, since Eben's time. He was uh, out of office in the 70s, but uh, not so much. Um, and so there really is this, so that's, that's a big factor um, in Israeli politics, the inability to coordinate across offices and ministries. And another, I think another big reason is uh, the lack of, oh, even mentioned one other factor which is crucial, his most profound observation about Israeli society is the lack of writing in Israeli society and Israeli politics. That you still, would you still see just a small example if you visit Israel, you're not, you're not, you don't write like a little memo when you, when you go up to the thing, you just, you, you, you speak, um, you, just, you just give a little, you talk with a security agent and a border guard. 
But this was true in every level of government as well. There's very little reliance on writing memos and on articulate policy papers are very limited in Israel. And many things, many big decisions are made simply through you know, understandings, hush-hush, you know, small conversations that are uttered in, in closed-door cabinet meetings and, and in, in secrecy and so forth. And that's very hard as you know, exegesis of diplomatic, you, know, you can have varying interpretations of written policy positions. However, um, how much harder is it to interpret conversations which you may, may not remember properly, which the emphasis may be different, and which you have liberty to, you have a, kind of an excuse if you're, if you're thinking of the policy is a bit different. You have an excuse to you give it give it your own particular spin. So that is a um, that's a, that's a big feature of Israeli society. Again, it's improved a little bit, but I think that um, it uh, it has had some baleful baleful consequences. Um, the other big the other big feature that really doesn't allow coordination um, between the diplomatic arm and the acting arm of the government is the Israel system of, of government. It's a system of proportional representation. There's simply no way around that. Um, in Israel, oftentimes, you know, as you know, the, it's, a, it's, it's, a, it's a system. Every government has been a coalition. No party has ever had an outright majority in the Knesset. And so your ministers, your foreign minister, for instance, in Israeli government is often from a different party. So if you know that this person is not really your ally, you're going to be much less inclined to share your, you know, your policy prescription with him, what you really intend to do, because you're not, you're not sure if tomorrow the government is going to fall and he can use it against you or all kinds of things. I mean, just the, the governments are in such a, such a weird shape. Now, you have, this, you have this in the United States also. You know, you, um, you know, the, this, uh, obviously, there are questions of distrust against different offices. You know happens wherever, wherever there's government. But there's a big difference between worrying you know, that Bob Gates will write a tell-all book you know, five years later in a you know, semi-gentlemanly way uh, than you know, compared to you know, the government you know, falling tomorrow, your foreign minister backstabbing you, and, you know, abroad. So it's just um, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a unique situation, I would say. Um, so, Right, and you know, one has to one has to think about and, and study uh, Israel's system of government and system of proportional representation in this respect. Uh, as I say, the, this 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 the coordination of political speech and deed is the hardest problem. It's not a unique Israeli problem. Uh, whatever whatever your system of government, um, Aristotle and Cicero uh, should be read more by Israelis and by by non-Israelis in this respect, because they're as relevant as ever and trying to help you explain how to do this. Um, but um, I think that um, Israel's privileging of political deed over speech has been harmful in many instances uh, to both political speech and deed. Um, I'll cite a few examples. Uh, Yitzhak Rabin, this is probably the most important one, prime minister who launched the Oslo Accords, um, assassinated in 1995. Um, launched those Oslo Accords without actually ever giving. It's an astonishing thing. You go back, you look, okay, what does he intend? What is our policy with this? And he never actually said so. It's a remarkable thing. He said, we seek peace. He may have, he gave, he gave some kind of general bromide, okay, there will be some, some state um, in the future. But he never really gave a speech as to what the real end game was. What was gonna be the relations with Jordan? Does he envision a, um, a, uh, a, uh, a full Palestinian state with army, with control over the Jordan River. What parts of the West Bank would Israel ultimately keep? Um, was, his was he serious about you know, a, a floated plan to connect Gaza and the West Bank? He didn't say. He didn't write. And uh, people were only able to guess. Um, this in particular was, I think, was especially bad for the peace camp because it's, it's kept it speaking. When, you, when, when they've tried to articulate its political goals, they've simply said peace. And they've not been able to fill in some of the actual content of what, what that would entail. What kind of peace would be good for Israel? Um, similarly, Ariel Sharon, um, withdrawing from Gaza in 2005, he labeled it a hitnakut, uh, a disengagement. 
as if it were possible to disengage from a territory that's 45 minutes from your commercial center and just over an hour's drive from your capital. It's like disengage, it's something we don't think about it anymore. Again, terminology is so important. Um, Sharon, too, even as he had absolute mastery over Israel's foreign policy at the time, gave no indication of what he intended to do. What did this disengagement, how did this disengagement fit in his general policy for the country? Was he handing over Gaza to keep the West Bank, as some of his aides have speculated? Had he converted to, uh, you know, simply like, okay, we're going to have a, um, a, a two-state solution? Um, Israelis don't know. We don't know. Um, all, 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 um, even, even Ehud Olmert, Tzipi Livni, his closest allies in this respect, were given no indications, and it's simply a matter of speculation. Um, and therefore, again, he gives his followers little ammunition for explaining and defending a policy, and I would add thinking clearly about what you're supposed to do. Um, and so it's not clear to me. So when you have, when you have, when you have action, these, were, these are all men of action, Sharanya, a soldier, Rabin, a soldier. It's specifically a, it seems, especially in the Israeli case, a specific uh, character trait of soldiers turn politicians to privilege, you know, to ignore the articulation of your political goal. Um, but it seems to me that it's very problematic and it creates all kinds of dissonance. Because then when you're trying, to, you're, trying to, you're trying to justify things afterwards and you just... There's no clear direction from your government, and you're pulled, pulled in many, many different directions. Um, now, of course, there is a school, I, I'd be remiss if I, if I don't mention this, um, I'll try to, try to wrap up soon, um, that holds that it's actually best to maintain creative ambiguity in Kissinger, former government professor uh, Henry Kissinger's phrase, with respect to political speech. So you don't, you have a policy, you have a plan as to what you're gonna do, but you re retain creative ambiguity as to your goals to allow for a greater flexibility of action. Um, in fact, the, the number one in di diplomatic history, the example that's often cited in support of this was Resolution 242 um, after the Six-Day War, which allowed both Israel and the Arab countries to supposedly retain their own interpretation of, as to what territories Israel might return. Um, and I could say there is, there is something to this. It, you, it's not something you could simply dismiss out of hand, especially um, with regards to uh, the Palestinian question. In Sharon's defense, um, it's you know above all the you know the hardest, uh, you know the least the least clear in the facts of Israel's foreign policy, policy cha uh, challenges, right? Um, so I can I can I can break it to you here if you don't already know that most Israeli political leaders, um, even if they believe that a two-state solution is is some some policy goal in the abstract, don't believe that it's plausible. For the time being, Bougie Herzog, the leader of the Labor Party, just gave a speech to that effect uh, a few weeks ago. But no one uh, on, on, on either side is willing to articulate a speech, a defensive speech, a political speech, um, which proposes some alternative and which you know, forthrightly acknowledges. I, I should say Herzog didn't, he acknowledged that it's not a realistic goal now, but it is, it's, this is still our political goal. This is what we're working towards. So no one has no no one has no one has yet yet said on the left or the right, with maybe maybe a few small exceptions on the right, um, even not not there so much that there's some alternative there's some alternative thing, um, we should be open to uh, different possibilities. So here one could say that I mean could one articulate this position even even not some long term goal which involves like a Jordanian plan for rule of the West Bank or a one state solution or many other creative things which have, or just, you know, time, you know, sometime in the distant future, there could be a Palestinian state. Here one could say creative ambiguity may be necessary because the stake that other countries have in that opinion is so immense that even if you could articulate a speech which accorded with your policy and your political facts, the costs in the, you know, in the corridors of power of the world um, and other countries are more powerful than you would be so immense that you can't do that. So I am, I am open to that argument in that case. But I want to suggest as a counterexample, the, I mentioned a, a, and to this, you know, the whole creative, uh, creative ambiguity school of uh, diplomacy um, as a whole, uh, the handling of the Syrian crisis, the Syrian civil war, which Israel hasn't pursued, interestingly, a policy of creative, a, 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 a public diplomacy of creative ambiguity. And I think Netanyahu has handled this very well. Um, 
the government has clearly articulated the Israeli policy line on Syria. Israel reserves the right to intervene, intervene when vital interests are damaged by any one tendency, so shipping of weapons or some particular actor which is viewed as uh, especially baleful, but will not intervene to support one side or other um, in the fight for control of Syria. And I've said, okay, this is, this is not our fight. And this is, is actually, I mean, Israel hasn't won plaudits on the world stage because of this. But you look at it, I mean, there's real, there's real quiet in that sense, right? And it's actually, I mean, who knows, who knows if there is a, um, you know, what, what the intents of actors on the other side of that, of that border is. But it's created a situation of, uh, of workability. Israel has not been uh, uh, criti uh, criti criticized at all. I mean, in fact, it's won praise in that context for providing humanitarian aid for for people who have uh, uh, come over. Um, and so that's an, that's an example where, again, you know, the speech and deed aren't perfectly uh, calibrated, but actually there's a political speech, it's, it's, it's articulated, this is our policy line, um, in line with what the government is actually doing. And I think you see that uh, reaping benefits of that. Uh, I don't know whether that same case, um, same, same way of doing things uh, could be directly applied to uh, the Palestinian case, but at any rate, I think it's a, I think it's, I think it's a real pregnant case for uh, thought. Um, and uh, I think that this, um, this, this, this example of a, a just, what I would call a just relation between um, a deed and a speech is a first, first way back to um, um, the, constructing a sound diplomacy. Um, so that's, that's an example of success. Um, another example of success is the, um, the, the Syrian case. Another example of success is this, uh, as I said, the justification of the high-tech industry, startup nation. Um, and what's interesting about that is that it's been non-governmental, right? One of the problems of diplomacy, I won't focus on this very much, um, public diplomacy is it's conducted by bureaucrats, um, by people who are in, in the government structure, and they're, even if they're very devoted to the country, there are so many bureaucratic red tape obstacles, it's very hard to be a, um, a, uh, to be a great advocate for your country within, within a bureaucracy. At any rate, there, it's not impossible, but there are some challenges. So what was interesting about this startup nation thing, so, so I'm sure you know that Israel has had high-tech boom over the last uh, uh, decade and a half. There was a best-selling book, um, Startup Nation, written by Dan Sinor and Saul Singer, which was translated into many different uh, languages, and suddenly Israel was seen as a, uh, you know, a, a, a mecca for startups. Um, but what was interesting about it, so the government subsequently went like, okay, yes, this is, you know, this is important, we can, we can run with this. But this was something that emanated out of Israeli society itself, a real political phenomenon that was then um, pursued by speech. So one has to, an, an, another important thing to think about when one is thinking about advocacy uh, uh, in our days is the uh, extent to which non-governmental and the, you know, therefore non-bureaucratized non um, things um, can, uh, can help. Now, in, in, uh, in criticism of that, one can say that this is an easy case, right? Because it allows you to say, okay, Israel is okay for startups, but it's not really a political phenomenon, right? It's more of a, so, I mean, it's political in sort of a secondary way. It's more of a social, cultural phenomenon. So you can like Israel because they have good startups and maybe will propose, you know, uh, help you think, but it won't, it's not clear that the people who like you for your startups will be, you know, friends, friends, friends to you when you, when you need it most. Um, and uh, th that, that, that's, 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 a, that's a fair point too. So essentially, I mean, there are no, um, there are no, there are no easy, um, no, no easy, e easy takeaways. My theoretical point, I think I judge the the, the most important out of all of this, the need to think about calibrating political speech and deed and the ruptures and the ruptures and that, how the ruptures in that relationship um, in Israeli society uh, can harm and has harmed uh, public diplomacy. Um, the only way to really rectify that is to read the classics, essentially, frankly, uh, Aristotle and Cicero, and try to think through more carefully how we, how we, how we fit political speech um, and deed. Um, it doesn't seem to me that that will be happening uh, in Israeli society anytime soon. So I think, but, so I'll just close with a few more practical, uh, practicable uh, suggestions. Um, so what I would counsel these organizations of Israeli Hasbara and others is to focus more 
on this sort of middle dimension between this big, like Israel's a great country, and the smaller day-to-day um, -day stuff. Um, and to actually produce material that friends or potential friends could, could get some service from. And here I think one looks at the American, the US, US information agency during the Cold War um, as, a, as a pregnant, as a, as a, as a very uh, uh, fruitful grounds for comparison. So they used to produce all kinds of things, materials um, that were very useful um, in helping America uh, win, win the Cold War. Um, there was this one publication I saw that sh which was remarkably successful that was called Soviet Military Power, which was produced in the Reagan days. And it get used declassified material to give like, a very, like an adequate account of the scope of Soviet military power at a, on a given year in a, in, a, in, a, in a detailed, accurate way. And obviously with a comparison of what the US military capacities were. So Israel doesn't do anything of that, of that sort, but they have the unique, with language skills and capabilities and intelligence, producing a, say, like a guideline of what, you know, the, a propaganda-free guideline of what the Syrian military ca capabilities are, what Hamas actually has, all these kinds of things. You see information on the line crop up in speeches. You know, Hamas has X number of rockets, Hezbollah has done X and that. But there are very few things which could land on the desk of a you know, policy member in you know, a friendly or neutral country um, but that, could, that a decision could actually, could actually turn on, right? So that's kind of combining, that's a public act um, that's but you know relying relying on information and intelligence also, but is I think in this middle area which allows you to connect the you know part of the part of the, the bigger bigger game of uh, diplomacy, um, uh, and the, uh, that that publication I mean it's little known today was actually extremely helpful if you're sitting in Eastern Europe in the 1980s and you finally have like an accurate account of what the Soviet military is and what the American military is you're actually this, uh, this, this does a lot to you. And in general, I find that Israeli Hasbara in, in, in these matters, like the digital promotion of Israel images of, of, of the city and the like, or of death and destruction and in bombings, et cetera, they're too, they're too mass market, they're too meant for the public, and they're not elitist enough. I think that these small journals, I think that other things that can really help policymakers make decisions, or at least be out there, um, in decisions is something something they should be uh, looking at. Um, otherwise, I think that um, in terms of there should be some some mass efforts as well. Um, I think radio and podcasts would be a, a huge venue that that Israel hasn't tapped, which 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 it could be. There already is. There's a Israeli national radio station which is translated into Arabic. There is an Arabic version of it but it's unspeakably boring, it's unlistenable, it has no, literally no listeners. Um, to think of what you could do if Hasbara, if Hasbara was more forthright and more, more proactive rather than, than reactive, as I was saying it mostly is, um, if you could find, find someone, some Arab host um, reporting in Tel Aviv on life in Israel, um, broadcast out through podcasts or radio, um, in all kinds of interesting ways, I think that would be, um, I think that could have a, an enormous impact. Um, and uh, once you once you start thinking of of um, of uh, these these things these things politically, I think you can uh, you can actually have a big uh, you, you can have a big influence. Uh, for all of this to succeed, just to, as a same conclusion, um, you need to the Israelis. The Israelis are doing this. Who are engaged in diplomacy? Um, they need to have an underlying belief that the role its role that Israel's role in the world is a is a good thing in general despite its flaws and a, a good contribution to the world um, patriotism of that kind is no guarantee of success but without it none of the projects will succeed thank you <laughs>